unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Hi, and welcome to episode, what we're calling 10.1 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Um, if you're wondering why we're calling it 10.1 instead of 11, it's because Nathan Gilmore is not here, uh, and we don't we don't use full numbers unless all three of us are here. David, where is Nathan today? Uh, from what I can tell off of Facebook, he is tending a sick son. Yeah. So, uh, d- uh, Nathan is being Mr. Mom, and David and I are going to be running the podcast today. I am unemployed graduate student, Michael Farmer. Um, I guess I'm the moderator, although with two of us, it's more like I'm interviewing you. Uh, and this is, this is David Grubbs, graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia. How are you doing, David? Uh, doing well. Doing my, well. Much better than the we over the weekend in which I had a bad cold. Uh, one of us is always sick, it seems like. Yeah. And it's never May. Well, uh, today we're beginning our three-part series on movies um, with a discussion of comedy, but we had a few things we wanted to cover before we got to the actual movie discussion. So, uh, first of all, we want to encourage all our listeners to go to the brand new website, which is uh, www.christianhumanist.org. We have a page there with information on the podcast, but we also have um, a new collated blog, and that's where the show notes for this episode and all future episodes are going to be, and that means if you've been reading my blog or Nathan's blog, you're going to want to go to this one instead, because I'm not going to be posting on Ladder on Wheels anymore, at least for the time being, and Nathan is only posting really personal stuff on hardly the last word. Um, So, Uh, The other thing we wanted to talk about briefly is the death of J.D. Salinger, who I think is the first major author to die since we started doing this podcast last October. Um, I wrote a brief appreciation of Salinger for the Christian Humanist blog, but I wanted to give uh, David a chance to say anything he wanted to about Salinger, Catcher in the Rye, or what have you. David, have you ever even read Salinger? Yeah, no. I didn't think you had. This this was going to work a lot better if Nathan was here. <laughs> Sorry. So, so if, the, you're, if you're interested... The only in, thing I know is... Uh, uh, is it Catcher in the Rye where the guy throws his arms up in the air and yells, Stella? No, that is a Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. Okay, what am I thinking? Uh, you're thinking uh, Streetcar Named Desire by okay, Tennessee okay. Williams. All right, so, yeah, then then I don't know, so... So if our yeah. listeners are interested in reading my thoughts on um, Salinger, uh, it is the first post on the Christian Humanist blog, and again, you can get there at uh, www.christianhumanist.org, and we encourage all our listeners to go to that website. So, uh, now that we've uh, praised Salinger in order to bury him, let's dive into our topic. Uh, we're we're going to talk about comedy today, in general, and then in specifically, we're going to talk about comedy in the movies and television, because I don't watch a lot of movies, frankly. Um, now, there's a couple different meanings to the word comedy, so I want to define specifically what we're talking about before we really begin in earnest. Um, sometimes the word comedy, it should be said, is used to mean anything with a happy ending. And we talked about the divine comedy last week, and that's clearly the sense in which Dante meant it. Um, those three books aren't really marked by their humor as such, although, as Nathan pointed out, there's some pretty funny stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um but they're, they're a comedy in the sense that they portray human life as having an ultimate direction. So that's comedy as a literary form and as opposed to tragedy. Um, life's not that bad. But that's not really what we're going to talk about. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. But um, what, what we're really going to be talking about is comedy the way non-literary types use the word. We're going to talk about humor, funny stuff, that kind of thing. Um, I wanted to say that Aristotle doesn't really talk much about comedy in the poetics. He's, he's talking mostly about tragedy. Um, but he does say that unlike tragedy, which features characters you're below and you're supposed to look up to, comedy encourages you to feel better than its characters, and that's why you can laugh at their foibles. Um, and that's about all I have from Aristotle this week, and I'm sure that when we do tragedy, um, Nathan's going to tell us much, much more about Aristotle. For now, let's get into our personal feelings about humor. David, um, there's probably as many types of comedy as there are people to perform them. You've got, you know, farce, political satire, romantic comedy, black comedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's your personal favorite? What makes you laugh? Um, my favorites tend to be, uh, I love parodies, um, especially very, very genre conscious inside joke parodies, um, 
also because of my family upbringing. I like good stories about, you know, kind of the the homely normal people that uh that I associate with my family and the people that I grow up with. Uh so, you know, on on the one on the one high that on the one side I like the very uh very kind of geeky parodies but on the other side uh things like a christmas story I I I love that. So you like character driven stuff and parody stuff. You must have been a huge Weird Al Yankovic fan like all 12-year-old boys. Oh, oh yes. He's all I listened to for about 2 years. Mhm. Which is yeah. uh, k- kind of embarrassing um to 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 uh, admit. Well, I honestly because my because my j- given ignorance of a whole lot of pop culture there are a lot of things that i have only accessed through parodies yeah and and I know, never, I know what you mean never saw the real thing um I, i'm with you on parody although it has to be really good for me to laugh at it i mean weird al is really funny he's he's really good at it but uh if you if you've if you've heard the people who uh who attempt to do what he does uh that can be a powerfully unfunny art form are you familiar with that um, Christian parody band, The Apologetics. Mm-mm, no. Oh my gosh, it's it's so terrible. I mean, I mean, yeah. I hate to, uh, I, I hate to, I hate to badmouth a specific group on this podcast, but uh, that they are, and I hope, I hope I'm not offending any of our listeners, but they are, they are atrocious. They've forgotten the the rule of parodies, which is they're supposed to be funny, and and, and they're just, they're just not. They turn um, the one I remember is they turn Lincoln Parks in the end into Corinthians. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no. Parody is not just taking the form of the thing and putting something else into it. The the best work from Weird Al, right, is the stuff where the uh, the form says something about the content. Like I'm thinking that uh, that parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's about mm-hmm. how uh, how you can't understand what Nirvana's saying. Yeah, I, I've got marbles in my mouth. Yeah, yeah. and the best one of all, I think, is uh, Living with a Hernia, the parody of James Brown's Living in America, mm-hmm. because he takes all of James Brown's mannerisms and makes them into part of the the comedy. He's yelling that way because he has a hernia. So um, yeah, it, it's much harder to do well than I think people assume it is. And I, I've written my share of parodies, and believe me, it's much harder to do well than you think it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of things are funny. I like, um, I like black comedy a lot, and, and by black comedy, of course, I don't mean the Friday movies. I mean, um, <laughs> I, I mean dark comedy. Um, right. I, I don't like that as much as I used to, but I still like it. Uh, I like pure absurdity, and I can't believe you didn't mention Monty Python, David, because you're a medievalist. Uh, we're getting there. We'll get there. I just, been, I've just been really wondering what you, what you call it, because. I actually include that under parody because I'm, I've read so many of the Middle English romances that scenes in Holy Grail actually seem to be pr- pretty pretty smartly sending up. That, that's probably so, true. It's kind of a combination pack. But there's no yeah. doubt that the, the Flying Circus show was uh, had, a, had a good deal of absurdity in it. Oh, oh yeah. And, and um, Conan O'Brien's late-night work... Um, May it rest in peace is another another pretty good example of absurdity in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always I always really like that. I like political stuff if it's smart and fair, which of course most of the time it isn't at all. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do I like a, a wide variety of comedy. I, um, I I like it much more than I like tragedy, and much much more than I like epic. Not to scoop myself um, in a few weeks when we do epic. Oh, sorry, okay. sorry, David. Well, somebody's got to love epic. I'm an Americanist. We don't have any epics. Okay, we'll 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 talk about that. We'll talk about it. Um, now let's move on to the actual historical production of comedy. Um, when literary types like us hear the term comedy, often we're not thinking of Will Ferrell. We're thinking of someone like Aristophanes, who was the most famous comic playwright in ancient Athens. David, what can you tell our audience about Aristophanes, and what what have you read of his work? Precious little. Um, the only thing that that I uh, that I encountered in, gosh, a world lit survey back in the day was, uh, if I'm even getting the pronunciation right, Lysistrata, um, or I, I think that's it. Um, it's Lys or uh, Lysistrata. I don't remember which one. I don't speak Greek. Right. This is when we need Nathan. Yeah, I know. I feel hobbled. Um, but that's that's the uh, that's the Aristophanes play that uh, really seems to 
get uh, kind of take the whole make love not war and that's the plot um the, the, the plot of that um if i'm if i'm getting it right is the one where the women decide to uh, withhold sex from their husbands until they get their way politically yes yeah absolutely uh it's a it's a coordinated conspiracy of the women from all the different greek cities uh who are simultaneously pledging to be as hot as they can be um but not uh amenable to the desires that that hotness unleashes and uh and therefore to uh uh to leverage their husbands into laying down arms uh because there's something that they want more than you know beating up on the other greek cities so it's a sex farce which kind of answers my next question which is does aristophanes's work hold up and obviously they could make that play into a movie today make it starring ed helms and uh and adam sandler and it would be it would be a big hit because the sex farce is still really big um really big in american society right 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 and that and that's exactly how it would play um you know they would probably update it and it would probably end up being some kind of, you know, on a college campus where the, all the sororities gang up to try to get the ROTC guys or something. That's funny. We should, uh, uh, we should totally write that. If anybody's listening, that's our idea and you can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, you so, find, so, did you find Aristophanes to be funny, David? Did you laugh when you read him? It was difficult. Uh, it's difficult for me to answer that question because the, the translation – that was uh, in the anthology that that I read it in, and I, and I still remember this uh, this impression. It seemed as if the translator was trying too hard to to make it still funny. Yes, that I actually, in some cases, it worked too hard, um, and in other cases, I wondered whether or not I was actually reading a translation of Aristophanes, or whether I was just listening to some translator tell what he thought was an equivalent joke to get the same kind of laugh out of a different audience. That, that's right. There's always copious footnotes that explain, well, I couldn't actually translate this because you wouldn't think it was funny, and so I just made up a similar joke. And the other right. thing I noticed, and I've read all of Aristophanes. Um, I've actually read, not, not, to, not to brag too hard, but I read all of, all of the major Greek plays. Um, a couple summers ago, and w what I noticed about Aristophanes is all his translators appear to be British and from mm -hmm. the 50s and 60s, which means <laughs> if you don't understand British humor, and I don't to a large extent, um, Aristophanes isn't funny. It, it ends up being incredibly British, and so what we need is a good American translation of Aristophanes. If you ask me, maybe we can get Gilmore on that since he speaks Greek. Maybe. Well, what I was the one that I was reading though. It took uh, apparently the Spartans in the original uh, in in the original, the Spartans are uh, their characters are speaking a different dialect of of uh, of of Greek, and this is supposed to come across with connotations of not only differentness but also of of kind of a these are these are the rustics. Yeah. So, so the, the translation that I was reading, whenever all the Spartans open their mouth, it's like it's like half blue collar comedy tour, half minstrel show. And it's incredibly off putting, especially when if you're like me, when I think Spartans, I'm thinking, you know, uh, I, I'm thinking 300, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and so all the Spartans open their mouth and sound like Larry the Cable Guy. Or, or you know, Al Jolson, um, and <laughs> it's simultaneously strange and offensive and not funny at at at, at all. So I, I I gotta say my my experience of Aristophanes was crippled by by its medium. I mean, I'm fine if I'm reading Dante, and Dante's picking on. You know, he's making some kind of inside joke that demands that you know, you know, black versus white, you know, wealth politics. Um, I can read the footnote and then appreciate it. But don't, you know, when you're translating, don't, you know, don't change the content to try to get the same laugh. That, that, that I don't know. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I was fairly disappointed because after, um, 
a month and a half of Euripides, I was ready to laugh. Mm-hmm. Not, not a lot of not a lot of uh, belly laughs in Euripides, and I'm sure we'll get to him when we talk about tragedy. But yeah, Aristophanes, um, he, he, he wasn't funny in translation to me. Now, um, one thing I was struck by with him, though, and I, I can't remember if they do this in Lysistrasa or not, but uh, his technique is is what we would call um, modern or even postmodern, because he breaks down the fourth wall, as they say, and he mm-hmm. addresses the audience directly. And in some cases, he uh, addresses specific people who he knows are going to be in the audience, um, which is just incredible and not something not something you would assume happened. Uh, what what is it 2500 years ago Mm -hmm. um the other thing the other thing i thought was interesting and you haven't read this one so i'm just gonna have to monologue i think okay uh he he put socrates in his play the clouds the socrates we all know and um well i was gonna say know and love but we all know from plato um and, and he gives him a very different picture than someone someone like plato does Socrates is basically a sophist in the clouds. He's very interested in corrupting the youth of Athens for money. That, that's pretty much what he does. Ouch. So I thought that play was actually pretty funny, and maybe that's because I was so much more familiar with the subject material. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to change around a lot of the jokes. The the more political plays like The Wasps and Peace, those are um those are much harder for me to follow. And, and Lysistrasa as well, although it had its funny funny parts. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think it's I think it's a T at the end. Uh, but one one thing that I did notice about if if the translation that I was reading was correct, a lot of his technique revolved on clever song lyrics that that took a an elevated uh, form of you know sometimes of, of of hymnody or of ode, and then taking the elevated form and giving it this sort of you know, mock heroic or sort of deflated content, and so the the uh, the jarring juxtaposition of what would have been you know high or even holy art with the scurrilousness of 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 his subject matter, but also frankly insults. The characters just in, they just insult each other a lot creatively, and. Watching, uh, especially watching old American comedies, if if you've ever watched comedies from the '60s, the ones that they don't show anymore. Um, <laughs> Amos and I'll, Andy, you mean? <laughs> well, no, not 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 Amos and uh, not necessarily Amos and Andy. More like, uh, oh gosh, the the those really awful uh, uh, AIP parody Poe movies that starred. You know Vincent Price trying to be funny. Oh yes. Okay. It, how much of it revolves around elaborate insults exchanged between these erudite people in this incredibly artificial conversation that has gaps for the laughs? Or, um, for that matter, we could talk about the television series Frasier. Right. Which, uh, I mean, I. I I, I don't know movies very well, and I know TV much better, so expect me to keep coming back to television shows, folks. So that's Aristophanes, and we should move on to, to probably the most famous comic playwright of all time, which is probably William Shakespeare, even though we, we, we likely know him better as a writer of tragedies and, and to a lesser extent, histories. Um, David, um, this question was supposed to go to Nathan, who is a Renaissance huh. specialist, but you've probably read as much or more Shakespeare as I have. What typifies his comedies? You, you uh, also like me, are married to a uh, Elizabethan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, so you must have, you must have picked up some stuff. What 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 typifies Shakespeare's comedies? Yeah, I've definitely had some bard inflicted upon me, and I and I say inflicted, but the, but really, I, I I do like the Shakespeare that I like. I like very much. Um, the the cliche about Shakespeare's comedies is that if everybody dies at the end of a tragedy, everybody is married at the end of a comedy. That's right. Um, and really, what you said earlier about the uh, sort of the more classic definition of comedy as the story that has a uh, in, instead of the the triangle of of a tragedy where the action rises and then just descends into chaos. Um, there's chaos in the comedy, but it's in the middle, and and at the end, uh, things are resolved and and they emerge and the characters are uh, are 
are rewarded for, you know, for having gotten through the difficulties. And Shakespearean comedies are comedies in that vein, but uh, they also include uh, el- elements that we would consider comic by the definition we we choose today or we use today. Um, my favorite is Much Ado About Nothing. It features battles of wit between uh, the two characters that, it, at least in performances of it uh, these days, are uh, the characters who are the, the main characters, which are Benedict and Beatrice. There is a more classical plot arc in Much Ado About Nothing, uh, but that focuses on the characters of Claudio and Hero, um, this young couple who are in love but whose who's attempts to... Uh, to, to get together uh, to be married are are thwarted by the the villain Don John who who arranges all of these uh, these misunderstandings and the the more classically comic plot arc is the resolution of those understandings of the, of those misunderstandings um, but you know as I said there are things that we recognize as comic um, not just the battles of wit and insult but also uh, the character of Dogberry who is the the constable who is very much a a, a Don Knotts Barney Five figure. Um, and he's is especially famous for his his misuse of words. He he uses all of these big words that don't in fact mean what he thinks they mean. And he ends up uh you know like like ad- addressing uh the you know addressing his his master uh, as as his malefactor instead of his benefactor things like that um, and so I thought performances that I've seen are actually are actually quite funny um, and and still and still hold up even when sometimes the language is is not current anymore. Now, David, the, have you ever taught um, have you ever taught a Shakespearean comedy? Oh no 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 no! Are you resistant to doing so? Uh, I'm not comfortable teaching drama, frankly. Oh, I see. I'm comfortable appreciating it. I'm comfortable working with it as uh, as literature. Usually, when I'm working with with drama, it's it's strictly as a as a written work. Um, I've I haven't done much with drama as as a separate medium. And and honestly, I'm not, I'm not I'm not comfortable teaching it. I let my wife do that. Um, I taught um, I taught Midsummer Night's Dream the first semester I taught freshman comp at um, mm-hmm. UGA, and I'd never actually read it myself before I taught it. And I taught it basically only because they were showing it at the UGA theater that semester, and I knew I could assign some extra credit for going. So I was fairly nervous about teaching it, and I was wondering how the students were going to react to it, whether they were going to think it was funny, and. Um, I found that the students take Shakespeare too seriously to laugh at him. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told in high school that Shakespeare's comedies aren't funny the way we think of funny, which is um, just patently untrue. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the comedies and really the tragedies, too, are full of like fart jokes and sex farce and all sorts of other stuff teenagers should be laughing at. But uh, Shakespeare's been elevated to this sort of cultural god. And so the students aren't ready to laugh at him, even if you tell them it's a comedy. Um, but then I, I they don't, ex- the- they don't expect him to be funny. And then when he is, they're not really sure if he was supposed to be and if they're allowed to laugh. I, I know they're not prepared with how dirty it is. They think they're reading yeah. too much into it. But, I mean, that, that play and all his other comedies are just filthy. Um, and what helped, I found, was making them read it out loud in class. I made them act out certain scenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the difference that made was was really amazing because the whole class was just erupting in laughter the whole time, including people who I'm sure never thought they would enjoy Shakespeare. So it, it's a, it's amazing how that works, that reading the comedies out loud, even if you don't know everything you're saying, makes them funny. And mm-hmm. I think it also reveals how much we've misread the comedies over the years. There's a speech. Have you read Twelfth Night, David? 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the plot, but that's that's purely in a class that was looking at uh, at the sources of Twelfth Night. Gotcha. So, so uh, for readers who haven't read it, uh, the terrible teen movie starring Amanda Bynes called uh, She's the Man is is built uh, based on Twelfth Night. My um, my wife did her master's thesis on that movie, actually. Anyway, <laughs> so there's a speech in Twelfth Night that everyone knows from a thousand inspirational speeches in the movie. Um, you, you can all say it along with me at home. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Well, we tend to read that speech as a straightforward inspirational statement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're reading it wrong. It's a dirty joke. Um, and when I saw Twelfth Night at the Shakespeare Tavern in Atlanta, the guy playing Malvolio did this, like, pelvic thrust during that, the, the, the third part of that sentence, and all became clear. And I won't explain that to our readers. I'll let, I'll let you guys just figure it out. Or Connect the dots. Uh, let, let you figure it out for yourself. But um, we're misreading Shakespeare. He's much funnier and much dirtier than we normally give him credit for. The, the comedy in Shakespeare is very, very low. And uh, we, we do a real disservice to his plays by pretending that they're for some, some sort of cultural elite. They're not. They're uh, therefore uh, stupid and immature people to laugh at, and there's a little bit of uh, stupid and immature in all of us, so next time you're reading or watching Shakespeare, feel free to laugh at the dirty jokes. They're in all the plays. Yeah, just watch for them. Now, David, we may have to skip this question because it's a specialist question to Nathan, but let's see what we can do with it. Um, Comedy has sometimes been seen by theologians as something rather frivolous. Um, I remember when I was at college, I once suggested that Jesus' parables were fundamentally jokes. You're supposed to laugh at them. And there was this audible gasp from my classmates when I said this. Um, who do you think is right here, David? Is, is, there, is there humor in the Bible? Is, is Jesus a funny guy? We're famously told Jesus wept. We're never told Jesus laughed. Jesus is called the man of sorrows. He's not called the man of a thousand grins. Um, <laughs> is there something in the Bible that... that promotes comedy in the uh, in the humor sense of the word um the bible definitely includes um you see it uh i think you actually see it in some of in some of god's uh god's monologue in the book of job but in other places you see the bible being uh the bible using uh juxtapositions of uh, of the absurdities in order to in order to to make a uh, a rhetorical point, and these days when we do those kinds of things, it's 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 very often in the form of a joke. Um, and Christ, uh, you know, Christ does these things uh, as 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 well. I mean, I th- in the you know the parable of the man who you know who loses. Uh, was it he 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 loses a pearl in a field and then he just outright buys the field yeah um, that that's and, kind of rabbinical humor right well I, I i don't know that much of about about rabbinical practice but at the same time it would be hard to imagine the audience hearing that and not chuckling to themselves at the absurdity of it and then and then saying well well what's what's Jesus point in that i mean it it seems to be an an absurd situation uh it's it's got a rhetorical point to it but but it's it's meant to be taken as absurd i seriously doubt that anyone in the audience thought that that was sensible um or, or how about the uh, the parable of the talents where the kind of doofus decides to bury the talents under the ground cuz he's afraid he won't make any money off of them right like right. th- that's that's profoundly stupid to the point where there's no way we weren't supposed to think it was funny. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, I would agree. I would I, w- I would agree with that. That you know that that there there are things that um you know I you know I have a hard time imagining uh, Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan and particular the rea- particularly the reactions of of the Levite and. Uh, you know the the people who pass along the other way and the excuses that they give as they watch this man bleeding out on the road um i don't know i don't know that he, that he had his audiences in stitches but there's definitely a, a a very black irony 
I think going on and going on in that passage as he, you know, as you juxtapose, you know, the man in mortal peril with the person who very fastidiously tiptoes around to the other side of the road while murmuring to them them to themselves, "Oh well, he'll he'll be okay. Someone will come along. It'll be fine." You but, know. But uh, again, as with Shakespeare, we've kind of elevated this to a to a cultural level where we can't laugh at it. It's too serious to laugh at. And uh, of course, I mean, we're Christians. We we believe it's it's quite serious. But um, I I don't know. I can't help but thinking there's some real comedy in there too. And uh, I, I don't I don't like the idea of a Jesus who never laughs, even though we're never told specifically that he does. Mm-hmm. I I have a hard time imagining that Jesus didn't laugh. Um, he was human. He was, uh, you know, you know, he he was in in uh, in all human respects like us in in his manhood, yet without sin. Um, now the the problem the problem is. Uh, which I, which I think has been a problem, you know, historically, is that if you read the book of Proverbs, um, there are some, you know, there are some verses, you know, laughter is, you know, laughter is good medicine, right? But there's also the notion, you know, laughter is often associated with fools and with scorners and with mockers. And... I, I think sometimes the perception of, of Jesus as a as an always serious, you know, always kind of earnest figure, I, I think may have, may have come from internalizing the uh, the link in the Book of Proverbs between laughter and mocking and scorn, and therefore seeing laughter as either something that's either foolish or something that victimizes others, and therefore that's not something that Jesus would have engaged in. But Jesus engaged in in mocking insults, right? He he talks about the Pharisee straining out a gnat but swallowing a camel, which again, that 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 just has to be funny. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I I don't think that's a that's a correct position, but I do think that's one of the ways that that people have gotten to that. Uh, well, with this whole discussion in mind, David, do you think there is a such a thing as a fundamentally Christian type of comedy? Uh, I That's don't a heavy about, question, I know. Yeah, I don't know about funda- fundamentally Christian, but I think there are, you know, if it do you, if you mean by that, uh, a comedy that's a comedy that's morally good and ethically responsible, versus one that isn't. Well, David, I'm a good follower of Karl Barth, so I, I'm kind of thrown off when anybody says ethical. Makes me oh, okay. think they're trying to dodge something. <laughs> ah, okay. All right. All right. Um, I read an interesting. Uh, I, I was kind of rooting around trying to trying to see. Well, what did I think about humor? Because honestly, it's not something that I think about much. Um, I, I'm much more invested in, you know, in in in, in notions of epic and myth and things like that. Uh, we Anglo-Saxon guys. That's that's kind of our thing. Um, and came upon an essay by uh, by Chesterton which Nathan always says is trying to sell something I mean, but Nathan's not here today is he we should no, just he talk isn't. about Chesterton for an hour and a half we should dang it um cuz i i love chesterton i think he's one of the one of the most sensible people who ever lived um he wrote an essay on humor i think that might actually be the title uh in which he makes a distinction between uh between humor and wit and I don't know that this would hold up lexically or that every use of these words historically in the English language would, would support the distinction he draws. But he makes a distinction between wit, which is a, a function of intellect, uh, of sharp intellect, and sets itself up in judgment on the absurdity and the faults of others. He sets a distinction between that and what he calls humor, which also – looks at absurdity and looks at faults but does not remove oneself from from the subject. Oh that's that, interesting. That that for him humor humor is is something that recognizes the absurdity in human in the hum, 
in the human that recognizes the fault in the human but does not pull oneself out of the object of humor you know who finds oneself's absurdities to be humorous who finds one's own fault to be humorous so that for him humor is a a more a more warm-hearted uh exercise that that loves what it pokes fun at and you're probably not going to be able to go along with this i'm sure because it's it's my area more than much more than yours but um the postmodern novel, let's say, would be composed almost entirely of wit and not of humor. Something like uh, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, which I just finished reading, uh, rereading this morning for my comps, is, mm-hmm. is very funny, but all the humor does is to conceal what's really a fundamentally tragic view of the world. And, and I think we can both agree that that is not Christian humor. No, no. It's... it's yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see... I don't see Christian the 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 idea that the the world is fundamentally negative and and we're laughing in its face to to keep from crying. That's I mean that that's that's not comedy in the classical sense and I think real real humor has a bit of that classical co- sense of comedy still in it. Um a com- but the problem is you can only have a fundamentally comic view of the world if you believe there's a purpose to things. That's, yeah. But Because right. things have to be headed in a direction. So, um, Camus could never be funny. Because, I mean, he could, he could make jokes, but he could never have a, a fundamentally comic view of the world, even if in the end, he's not exactly a pessimist. Right. The, the, they're, 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 they're two different things. I did want to recommend a couple of books on the subject of kind of fundamentally christian comedy okay. um the the first is a book of literary criticism it's called uh, the comedy of redemption it's by ralph c wood uh he mm-hmm. examines three of my favorite authors uh flannery o'connor walker percy and john updike and then he looks at this guy peter devries who i don't know i don't i don't know and i don't really know anything about uh wood is a christian he teaches at baylor university i believe and he's looking at the way these three folks use humor to hint at an eternal truth, and he examines the differences in their approaches. I completely disagree with his evaluation of the relative merit of Percy's novels, and, and to a lesser extent with, with uh, his examination of Updike, but that's okay. Um, it, it's, it's a really good book, and it actually also has about the best summary of Karl Barth that I've ever read, and uh, would contrast what he sees as a, a really comic outlook in Barth, with the more tragic outlook in Reinhold Niebuhr. But that, that is a great book that will show you how comedy can be used to uh, kind of further the kingdom of God. And the other book um, I wanted to talk about is by Frederick Beekner. It's called Telling the Truth. Ah. The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. And Beekner would actually say, we're doing this I like podcast. That book. Do you? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's an interesting book because he says that the gospel is all three. It's comedy, tragedy, and fairy tale. And you actually have mm-hmm. to... Uh, talk about it as tragedy before you can even get to the comedy part. So he well, he'd say we're doing these podcasts out yeah. of order. One thing uh, I read that bu- book long ago when I was an undergraduate and I think I'm getting this from the, from that book but it's the, the notion of the the difference between tragedy and comedy in terms of the the sort of the the plot line of the world is how far does your plot arc extend? That's right. Because if your plot arc if your plot arc stops here, then of course it's a tragedy. <laughs> but but if uh, if it extends further, if you well if if you uh, this this is a point that that you know Nathan has has, has made uh, you know repeatedly, if if you look at the world now within this uh within an apocalyptic vision of a future resolution of the tragedy that is the now um then you you open yourself up to the to the the comic potentials of the now because you believe in a resolution a future resolution that's right yeah Beekner, and I can't remember if it's in that book, I think it's actually in another one, but he talks about how uh, God is the ultimate humorist because God's jokes always come out of left field. Like uh, Christ's death on the cross is one of God's jokes. 
uh, and nobody expected it, and that's what makes it funny, because, of course, the uh, theory on humor is the unexpected is what's funny. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to parse exactly how the crucifixion is funny. It's definitely It's a, it's a practical though. joke on uh, Satan, I think, is the idea. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. And he okay. says Satan's jokes are never funny, because uh, you can always see them coming a mile away. Right. I'm. I'm thinking. Uh, I'm now thinking of you know if you imagine Satan as sort of a wily e. coyote figure That's who, right. spin, who spends the entire episode <laughs> concocting this vast, complex attempt to trap the Roadrunner, and then all of a sudden the the all of a sudden the Roadrunner pops up back behind him and goes meep meep. And then you see the plummet off of the cliff and then the puff of dust from it. And that's, that's right. And that's the cross. So finally, with all that out of the way, and we're six questions in and I don't have my timer on, but it looks like we're at least 45 minutes in and we're finally getting to the, the um, supposed topic of this podcast, which is movies. Mm. Um, David, what movies never fail to make you laugh? <sighs> Monty Python, Holy Grail. Um, knew it was coming. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I no matter how many times I watch that, that it's it's still funny. You don't um, think it falls apart halfway through? Oh no 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 no. I I used to used to like the first half much better than the last half. The more I've watched it, the more I love even the even even the end. All right. I mean, well, that part at the very end, just before the cameras get cut, when when that you know sort of bluff British police officer takes that shield away from the knight and says, "Oh no, give that here! It's an offensive weapon." You know, I haven't seen that movie since undergrad, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, but it's a shield, which is clearly not an offensive weapon. Uh, oh, I get it. Anyway, that 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 to me is that's. That's just hilarious, and the that you know, whenever I read any kind of story about idiocy in law enforcement, some kind of really ridiculous, you know, airport security debacle or something like that, I always think of that police officer who takes away the shield from the night and says, "Give me that; it's an offensive weapon." <laughs> um, and and that that I think is one of the reasons why why uh, it it holds it holds up to me is the, the more I, the more I watch it, the more I realize the, the absurdities that, that run throughout the entire film are, are actually things that happen pretty much constantly. And it's the, the, the more and more, uh, I'm aware that I'm actually, you know, sometimes living in the middle of a Monty Python sketch. (laughs) We all are, aren't we? Yeah. What about you? Well, uh, let's get to Nathan's before we, we talk about mine. Mm-hmm. He, he he did give us a list of his favorite movies so that our uh, audience would know that he's not completely humorless. Um, <laughs> just, just close to it. Okay, he can't leave a pun untouched. The man is not without humor. Uh, that's true. He, he's, he's much faster than I am. I'm, I'm jealous. I, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like you and I are coming off better in this episode than we normally do because uh, there's no Nathan to hold us down. <laughs> anyway, um, his favorites, he says, and I've only seen a couple of these, uh, Bull Durham, Monty, which we should know because he quotes it all the time, um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Wayne's World, Dr. Strangelove, and Young Frankenstein. So out of those two, I've only seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Wayne's World, and I haven't seen Wayne's World since high school, so I have really nothing to say about those five. Do you uh, Do you have anything to say about Nathan's picks? Um, I think Young Frankenstein's pretty strong. Um, My wife likes it, but I've never seen it. The, it now a lot a lot of those uh, those really sort of by the numbers Mel Brooks uh, uh, parodies whatever you want to call them um, a lot of those to me are just a little too overwrought but I think Young Frankenstein holds together really. Are you well. telling me that Dracula Dead and Loving It is in a, is in a uh, film classic? Yeah, that, I think that's what I'm saying. Um, I, I I remember really liking um, Robin Hood Men in Tights, uh, especially the part where Dave Chappelle keeps jumping over the river. I I, yeah, I remember oh, yeah. thinking that was really funny. I liked all those parody movies when I was a kid, the Naked Gun movies, mm-hmm. and uh, well anything with Leslie Nielsen really. Before I realized what an incredible hack Nielsen um, really can be. 
Well, it, uh, I, I think that a after a while, uh, it, it, you know, I, I mentioned this before, but if you watch, you know, if you watch comedies from the 60s and the 70s, that you know, not the ones that are still watched, but the but the ones that were kind of the equivalent of the disposable, you know, the disposable summer, you know, the disposable comedies today. Um, a lot of that is actually still in Mel Brooks, and I've, I, I, the, the, the almost, the you know, the pause after the joke. You know, he makes the joke and he looks at the camera, and you can almost see in the man's head that he hears the drum and cymbals. Yeah, you know, he <laughs> hears the rim shot. Ball. You know, and you know, and and that can you know that can loop that can be so ridiculous that it kind of loops back around again and becomes funny. Well, there's a principle and, and usually this has to do with repetition, but it's really any kind of overkill in comedy. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned about this from the Simpsons, which is something is funny and then it's not funny. And then it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. So if you think about that, I don't know if you've seen this, that episode of the Simpsons where sideshow Bob keeps stepping on rakes Mm -hmm. Have you? He steps on seventeen, I think. And I, th I think I've seen a YouTube video that basically just takes the rakes, and yeah. and, and just kind of strings them all together. <laughs> anyway. Well, it's all at once. There's yeah. there's no there's no pauses oh, okay. between. Okay, them. I thought, it's okay. One, I thought it's I was watching scene. an edited version. No, no, <laughs> that's so that that's how it aired, and it aired that way, I guess, because the episode was short. But um, yeah, so there, there's a principle where if you keep doing something, eventually it's the funniest thing people have ever seen. Um, yeah, and the, the same is true of uh, Mel Brooks's pauses. Mm. As for me, um, I really like the Coen Brothers movies, which are almost all funny. Yeah, even the ones that aren't funny. Um, they play a lot with human stupidity and arrogance, and the combination of those two things—stupidity and arrogance—is almost always funny to me. Which I guess is why I read so much political commentary. Um, a brother, where art thou? Ah, uh, it's so funny. I, well, unfortunately, I, we can't I quote love that the, uh, the really good lines from that movie on a uh, family podcast. Yeah. Um, have you seen The Hudsucker Proxy? I really like that one, and, and most people don't seem to. I've not. I've not. I, I honestly, I've seen I've seen very little, very little of their work, and probably wouldn't have even watched Oh Brother, Where Art Thou had it had it not been thrust upon me. I watch very little comedy, um, and it, I'll, I'll explain that in a bit, but. I, I, but as as a result, I, I've you know, a brother out there is pretty much the only one of theirs that I've that I've seen. Well, the HUD the Hudsucker Proxy is fun. It's kind of a homage to the uh, screwball comedies of the mid twentieth century. It's very underrated. Uh, Tim Robbins is in it. Jennifer Jason Lee, Paul Newman, mm -hmm. the bad guy. It, it's it's a funny movie and and has has a bit more of a heart than most of their movies. But um, it's it, people don't seem to like it. Um, anyone who ever read Ladder on Wheels for any period of time knows that I love the old Disney shorts, um, mm -hmm. particularly the ones with Donald Duck in them. <laughs> Mickey Mouse is really boring past his first five or six cartoons where he... Have you seen the really early Mickey Mouse cartoons? No. He's no, smoking I... and drinking and shooting guns and starting bar fights. He used to be... That is awesome. Yeah, he used to be He used to be really rough around the edges, and then they made him just insufferably bland, right? Which is how all of us know Mickey Mouse. Oh yeah, he's he's he is the Mickey Roger or uh, he he's the Mister Rogers of of uh, cartoon characters. That's right. So you really can't identify with him, but uh, I can get behind Donald Duck. He has this boundless optimism that's constantly shot to pieces by the world he lives in, and then he, he flies into this impotent rage whenever that happens. <laughs> I, I I really identify with Donald Duck. Um, I, I those I think are probably the funniest thing from the 20th century, if you if you ask me. Uh, I also like the the shorts with uh, Goofy, the ones where he's usually playing sports, and there's a really straight laced announcer who, who doesn't even notice what a monumental screw up Goofy is. Yeah, those are, those are really funny to me. And mostly, I just love cartoons. I loved The Simpsons for the first five, uh, six or seven years it was on. I, I think it is just atrocious now. I can't even watch it. Um, and I loved King of the Hill up until the, the very end of the series, which happened a few months ago. And I think that's a really underrated show that doesn't have any of the crassness or ugliness of something like South Park mm -hmm. um, or Family Guy, which has to be the worst thing to ever happen to television besides the Jay Leno show. Well, I mean, Family Guy, I, I, I'm usually such a sucker for non-sequiturs. But, but non-sequiturs only work if there's something to non-sequitur from. 
Right. When your right. whole show is just a series of them, there's nothing. To, there's nothing to hold on to, so you can laugh. You know, and, and after a while, I'm like, ha, 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 random element with other random element. Ha, 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 randomness. Did you see that South Park episode where they make fun of Family Guy? Um, I thi- yeah. Is, is I can't watch it? South Park because it's so crass. But uh, I thought that was a really great episode. They, they yeah. basically said they have a series of manatees with a bunch of balls with things yes. written on them, and they, they just knock them into a uh, container. I saw that episode. It was brilliant. Well, not only that, because it was it was not just a send up of a Family Guy. It was also a send up of all the all the craziness ensued around the world when a bunch of uh, caricaturists decided to draw pictures of Muhammad. That's true. It's, it actually has quite a bit to say about comedy, I suppose, and about freedom of speech and what have you. Yeah. Um, but anyway, King of the Hill has to be has to be my favorite television comedy ever did you ever did you ever watch that david I, I i get the feeling a lot of people don't um i i, I don't simply because i you know i'm i'm kind of the the invert the 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 inverse of you in that uh i don't have i don't have cable oh, i don't I watch see. i don't watch television um about the only thing that i watch is movies because we've got a tv with a dvd player and and the, and that's 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 what i watch um, I've, I've seen a few episodes of it. Um, honestly, I've never watched one all the way through because I didn't expect it to be funny. I, I flipped through there and I'm like, oh, wow, there's a bunch of guys standing out in the backyard with it's, beards. It's very quiet. It's very, very quiet. I'll have to send you, um, my DVD so you can, um, so you can watch them. I, I, I love that show. I think it's sweet. And I think it's it's really got a true comic outlook in the sense that we were talking about, and it, it doesn't encourage the audience to look down on the characters, and its lead is someone that you're really supposed to admire, which is, I know goes against Aristotelian principles, but so does the Cosby Show, which is mm-hmm. I mean, it's very similar to the Cosby Show in that way. You, you can you can laugh at Hank Hill, but in the end you admire him and you wish more people in the world were like him. And I think the same is true of Cliff Huxtable. There's a couple of it, that reminds me of. Uh... Something something that Chesterton talked about, which is uh, he said that that real humor, warm-hearted humor, is founded in the dignity of hum in in the, in the dignity of man. That if you see a tree fall over, that's not humorous. But if you see a very dignified, you know, older gentleman in a suit walking along the sidewalk and slip on a banana peel. That's hilarious. But as uh, as Crust of the Clown says, the pie gag's only funny if the sap's got dignity. Right, 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 right. And that and and that's exactly what Chesterton is saying. That uh, you know that the hu- the humor would not be there if 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 the the indignity that's thrust upon whoever is you know the humor is being inflicted upon, if that was not juxtaposed with what should be their dignity and it's it's one of the reasons why you know you know just simply dark misanthropic comedy for me is not funny at all because it hates what it's uh what it's mocking yeah and uh, that 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 i can't I, i i can't handle it um but uh this is not this is not movies or TV. It's books. Uh, a fellow named Terry Pratchett. Um, he writes uh, what can be called briefly parody fantasy, but it's so much more. Um, but that that's that's someone who loves people and pokes fun at their foibles, but but loves them the whole time. Even the most flawed of them, you can tell that he. That these that these are characters that he really he really loves and he feels for these characters even while, you know their flawedness is making us laugh, and we love them too and we want and we wish them well. Which is what Ralph Wood says about John Updike. Um, mm-hmm. Except Updike doesn't really make you laugh most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Um. I I mentioned earlier that 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 I don't watch a lot of comedy. Part of that is because for me the funniest movies are the ones that didn't mean to be um i love mystery science theater 3000 oh okay that is that to me is that's the comedy that i can watch 
nonstop, and it's always funny. Well, we I should give watch. a shout out to our to our friends at the uh, CWC over at Bethel because what, Joel Hodge Hodgson, yeah, oh, yeah, is a Beth- Bethel graduate. So congratulations, really? Bethel, for producing Mystery Science Theater three thousand in whatever role you had uh, in doing so. Thank you so much, Bethel. I personally owe you so much. <laughs> yeah. um, but Joel Hodgson is my example of the person who loves while he mocks. Um, it, you can tell while you know, especially the those those early episodes, the you know the first few seasons, what when Joel's there that. Even while he's poking fun at these movies, you know he loves them. And he'll get up these little sketches in between segments where they'll take some element in the movie and, and kind of riff on it. And and what he's doing there is he's not just holding up the he's not just being Roger Ebert writing, you know, writing a movie review of a movie he hates. I and hated, just... hated, 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 hated this movie. Right, right. He's not just doing that. He's taking the movie, taking its flaws, and playing along with it. And the, and and I can I can watch that and and get so much so much pleasure out of it. Uh because it's it's not so much the humor that's being created and given back to me as it is Joel Hodgson, you know, the warm-hearted observer of hum- of the human absurd sitting along with me watching something that's flawed that uh, that otherwise I might just re- reject as crap and seeing and and him showing me here's how you can how you can look at this and and find pleasure even in even in the its absurdity, even if it's in its flawedness, even in its failures of execution, and its its hackneyed stereotyped, you know, by the book plot. You know, here's how you can look at this thing that is even not really that great art, and find in it this 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 kind of deep pleasure. And in the end, love it. Which is, it, it's a Christian principle, right? If if man is created in the image of God, then the things man creates also somehow have that spark. Yeah, it, I, I think I think it's... You so know, maybe it's Bethel almost, is more responsible for that outlook than... Uh, <laughs> I might assume, yeah. I don't know. It, it's almost a redemptive kind of humor. You know, the kind of humor that can make me sit sit with this guy in coveralls and a couple of robots... And at the end of it, feel that, you know, The Brain That Wouldn't Die is actually one of my favorite movies. I gotta admit, I've only seen that show once, David. It's, it's too yeah. long for me to sit through. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, that that's, uh, that, that's how, uh, that's how resistant standard. I am to... Uh, I, I just can't... And I say this having watched um, Judd Apatow's Funny People last night, which is two and a half hours long, but mm. an hour and a half too long. But... Um, I, I just have a really hard time justifying watching one thing for that long. Really? In in my own head. Now, that may be me just making excuses for my own attention span. Yeah. My my attention span is movie length, which is why uh, watching television is difficult for me. Television show is over before... Before you really start to care. Before... Well, it's over before I've stopped... Before I've stopped wanting to watch something. Which means I watch the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and it never goes off. You just need to get DVDs. Yeah. Next time of. I see you, I'll I'll, uh, I'll loan you my King of the Hill DVDs. I think you'd like it. That yeah, that would that would be awesome. Um, anyway, now 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 we're um, now we're getting off topic. So th- this seems like as good a place as any to end um, in the the Nathan Gilmore free podcast. <laughs> uh, David, I think I think you're going to be moderating next week. Uh, what, are we, what are we going to be talking about? Well, we're going to be talking about the thing that you like least. Um, we're going to be talking about epic, um, moving from from comedy in uh, film and I guess television as well uh, to epic. Um, I suppose there's some epic television, um, but mostly it's on all HBO. television is epic if you really think about it. Well, that's one of the things I'm gonna. Uh, one of the well, not all to American show, television. Not to show too many cards, but I think the word epic gets overused a bit sometimes. 
Um, well, but, if, anyone's, if anyone's qualified to set us all straight, it's you, David, so we'll look forward to that next week. Awesome. In the meantime, <laughs> uh, if you want to send us an email and we'd... Uh, you know, we'd appreciate it. Let us know what your fa- what, what really makes you laugh. Give us your own Christian theory of comedy, etc., etc., etc. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go read our collated blog, brand new, at uh, www.christianhumanist.org. Uh, in the meantime, this is Michael Farmer for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>